So we were, we were talking last week how 2 Corinthians is really a personal letter from Paul. <clears throat> how a lot of it has to do with his relationship with the church in Corinth, a church that he left and he wrote a really strong letter rebuking them for various sins in the congregation. And he's been very, he's very concerned to know how they're doing. And uh, the issue in Corinth is that they're worried that Paul abandoned them. They're like, were you even a legit guy, apostle? And are you just pretending that you want to come back and visit us again? Do you really love us or are you just going to leave us? And there's other so-called apostles coming in and being like, yeah, don't listen to that Paul guy. So a lot of this is Paul's relationship with the church and how they view one another. And so uh, we'll see kind of some of that at the beginning here. We might move a bit quicker at first because I want to spend a bit more time on the stuff at the end of this chapter. But So the, the context coming from the end of chapter 1, um, he says, it was to spare you that I didn't come to Corinth. So Paul, his... And I don't, I don't even think it, personally, I have a hard time seeing how good of a reason this is. But he says, the reason I didn't come to Corinth sooner is because I wanted to spare you. And he wants to spare them because he had just written them this harsh letter. And it's almost like he didn't want to add insult to injury. He didn't want to have to come and show up and lay down a heavy hand after he had just written to them this heavy letter. He says, uh, I don't mean that we lord it over your faith. We're workers with you for your joy. And then we start in chapter 2. In fact, I made up my mind about this, that I would not come to you on another painful visit. Um, he wrote them a painful letter, doesn't want to have a painful visit now. For if I cause you pain, then who will cheer me other than the one who's being hurt by me? Um, it's kind of oddly worded, but he's almost saying there, um, if I'm coming in a season of pain when things haven't been resolved yet, we're not going to have joy together. We're, we're not going to have that sweet rejoicing fellowship because we're just going to be kind of dealing with this conflict and trying to resolve it. And Paul wants to come back to the church after they've had time to respond and fix up the things that his letter brought up, that they can have a fruitful fellowship at his next time there. Um, and that's what he says in verse three, I wrote this very thing so that, so I wrote this letter so that when I came, I wouldn't have pain from those who ought to give me joy. Um, he's like, I, want, I should be able to rejoice in you guys, and I don't want to have a painful visit, so I wrote this letter so that we can figure these things out before I come. Uh, I'm, confident about, I'm confident about all of you that my joy will be yours. He's like, I know there is going to be a resolution to this. I trust that you will respond well to this letter I sent, and we'll be able to rejoice again together. Um, oh, just a side note again, uh, if anyone's still new to the class, you can comment, question, anytime, feel free to participate. Uh, I think we, we went to some interesting discussions last uh, time that I enjoyed, so that's just out there. I'm confident about all of you that my joy will be yours. Um, I trust it's going to happen. We're going to have a joyous reception in time. And he talks about this writing again, what he did in verse 4. For I wrote to you with many tears out of an extremely troubled and anxious heart. And like just there, that's really amazing. Um, that Paul loves this church so much, that he cares for this church so much, that when he's writing to them about issues in their midst and these sins and conflicts, he's doing it with tears and out of an extremely troubled and anguished heart. He says not to cause you pain, like his goal is not that they would just have pain, but that you should know the abundant love that I have for you. And I think here there's definitely a lesson for us to learn um, that bringing correction 
bringing rebuke, bringing admonishment or even discipline to people ought to be coming from a heart of love that uh, responds with such a compassion that there's, there's an anguish and a grief about the state of the other person, the state of their soul, the state of their life. And this is what we want to have in the church as we hopefully will be a people that stand for the word of God and are willing to call out things that are not right in each other, but that it's never done from a place of like looking down, like, how could you live that way, you little whatever? Uh, But it's like, I'm so burdened for your good and for you to thrive in the Lord and to walk in the light that I am willing to, in a sense, inflict pain upon you because it's for your good. Um, And... We, we, we've all probably, to some extent, experienced this in our families growing up, whether you were a child or you're currently a parent. Um, like, what did our parents generally say to us when they had to discipline us? It's like, you know, I'm going to spank you because I love you, and this is because I care about you. I'm not uh, being mean or angry. At least this is the ideal scenario, right? And y- you good parents know how to do this, right? You're telling them, I'm going to cause you pain, but it's because I love you. And this is the way it should be for us in the church as well, that um, if we're going to cause people pain, it needs to be out of love. And I think even just part of the problem, we were actually talking about this in our small group last week, um, is just how often we're actually unwilling to rebuke one another and to correct each other when we see things that are not um, in accordance with Christ and how a Christian should live. And... There's a sense in which you could say we like lack courage to confront people because um, we're scared it'll be awkward. We're worried about how they're going to respond. But I think maybe deeper is that we just lack love. Um, you know, we, uh, parents love their children enough to discipline them, but it's almost as if, if you, I feel like we often don't love each other enough to um, say things to one another that would actually be to their good because obeying Christ and walking in holiness is like the most joyful um, peaceful way to live. And when we let people just walk um, in a contrary way without bringing it up, we're really just not being very loving. And so I think that we just need to be praying that God would give us a heart of love and compassion that out of that love would overflow in seeking people's good, even if that means having to go through an awkward or maybe slightly tense feeling situation. Does that make sense? Any thoughts on that from anybody? And I, like, I definitely need this for myself. Like, I really hate conflict. It, like, makes me sick to my stomach. And um, even just generally the thought of, like, confronting someone is uh, fearful for me. So I def- it's definitely an area I want to grow in. Um, but I think it's helpful knowing, like, this is, if it's going to happen, it needs to come from love and a heart that really has care and concern. Um, okay, verse 5. If anyone has caused pain... He has caused pain not so much to me, but to some degree, not to exaggerate, to all of you. And he's talking about the situation he brings up in 1 Corinthians 5. He's talking about a situation where a guy is sleeping with his father's wife. Uh, It's an incestuous sort of relationship. And that person was supposed to be disciplined and uh, put out of the church. Uh, He says, with such one not even to eat. And he says, remove the evil person from among you. So there was a discipline process enacted in Corinth where this person who was walking in a grossly immoral way contrary to Christ 
was in a sense removed from the fellowship and not counted a brother because of the way he was living. And um, he says, like this, uh, uh, if anyone, especially this person has caused pain, he's like, it's not just me. It's like, it's not just that I have a vendetta against this guy because he's not living the way I want. It's that he has, he's like, he's hurting all of you. He's hurting the witness of Christ. These actions and sins, because we're a body, they affect the whole body. And so he says the punishment, verse 6, by the majority is sufficient for that person. Um, and in church discipline, um, this is why it gets brought to the church eventually. Because uh, for it to be effective, um, it has to be publicly known and acknowledged. So the final step in church discipline, what we call excommunication, is to... Um, and the process is slightly different in every church... But it's basically how do we make a statement that says, by the way you're living, we can't consider you a Christian right now. We can't consider you as one of us. And so that, that could be anything from being like, hey, we don't want you taking the Lord's Supper. Some churches go and say, we don't actually want you attending our church at all. And some go a step further and be like, we actually shouldn't even have any sort of like friendship mm. with you. Um, and, there, and there's debate on what's the level of separation, but I think the, the idea that we need to have is just how is it communicated that we do not consider this person living contrary to our vows to be a brother or sister in Christ. Um, and I think of even the membership vows that we're taking today, I forget if it's the third or fourth vow, but it says, I promise to... Um, to live in my strength, basically, to fight sin, to endeavor to walk in holiness. So if someone's breaking that vow, they can't be considered one of us at that season. So he uses this term, the majority, um, which actually is funny. Some people use this verse to say, like, this is why we should have, like, votes with raises of hands. And we, like, count up the majority because it says majority here. I'm not sure we can go that far. But um, the idea that, that there, there is a, a large part of the church that's aware and understands what's going on so that this can be an effective form of discipline. And he doesn't know the details here, but it actually seems that this was effective and the person came to repentance. So, like the, and I think we often miss this with church discipline. The whole point is restoration. The whole point is that the person, um, it says, would be almost handed over to Satan that their flesh would be destroyed. That is that part of them that is corrupt and sinful and that their spirit may be saved. And beautifully, we do sometimes get to see that people are disciplined and they come to repentance and rejoin the body. And I think here's a big lesson for us in verse 7. As a result, you should forgive him, comfort him. Otherwise, he may be overwhelmed by excessive grief. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. And this is something... We often struggle with that when people have been living contrary to Christ, or even if they've sinned against you or me, um, and they do come to repentance, what does it look like to forgive them and actually comfort them and speak reaffirming our love to them? And this speaks to what is our heart. If we had a heart of love to discipline, right, that has to be in love. We have to have a ready heart of acceptance and compassion towards people. And one thing we really struggle with, I think, and I don't know if this is just broader culturally, but um, is having compassion towards perpetrators and not only victims, um, which seems counterintuitive, but um, there's a great sorrow. When, when, when you live in sin, you ruin your own life. And um, 
it's right that it's right that we have great compassion for people that have been victims of sin from others, but we need to remember that people who have been great sinners, they carry a tremendous burden of guilt and shame and just harm in their own conscience and life. And so when someone does come to repentance and genuinely changes, we need to be so compassionate and so ready to comfort them because it is possible, like it says here, to be overwhelmed by excessive grief. And so we don't want to continue that um, outcastedness or that burden of shame. And I remember I, I, uh, I had a friend who got pregnant when she was a teenager in the church I grew up in. And um, she was worried that, like, you know, that evidence of her immorality would just haunt her. And wonderfully, the church, as she repented, really forgave and accepted her. And it was a, it was a really lovely story um, of really forgiving someone when they've truly repented. And uh, it makes me think of, in the Old Testament, the story of the king Manasseh. And the king Manasseh was the most wicked king of all the kings. Um, every sort of defilement, every sort of idolatry, every sort of abomination. And he ends up getting taken captive by the enemy. And in his prison, he finds um, true repentance before the Lord. And the Lord restores him and forgives him. And it's a reminder to us, um, it's actually my, uh, I, have a, I have a friend named Dave King who's a pastor, and um, it's his favorite story in the whole Bible, just a picture of from the greatest depths of sin, and if there's hope for Manasseh, there's hope for you and me and the people we know that fall into sin in various ways. So, um, yeah, we, we, we love justice and want to see people almost get their due sometimes, but we need to remember that God loves repentance almost more than anything. And especially as you read the Old Testament, one theme that if you are looking for it, you'll see constantly is just how amazingly God responds to repentance. God always responds with such openness, such compassion and love to those who are repentant. I, I wrote this verse nine to test your character to see if you are obedient in everything. He wanted to see if the church would submit to his apostolic authority. Um, any comments or questions on this so far before we go on? One thing, but it seems almost a little different nowadays because in course there was just one church, but now there are many and it's easy. A lot of them are very open. I guess um, that doesn't say that we are, or our calling is any different, but maybe it makes it a little more difficult. Like what with, with discipline? Like if you do discipline someone, they can easily go to a different church. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, but... Um, yeah, I guess the calling is still there. That doesn't really change much, I suppose. Yeah, no, it's a, uh, it's, uh, because our churches are not as unified as we would hope, um, people can slip in and out and go to a, a less strict church that'll just welcome them with open arms, even though they're under discipline. Um, and I think that's just a sign of like when our churches aren't unified as Christ would have them be, uh, things are not going to be working in an ideal way. And I think that's a call and a prayer that we need to be unified. Yes. You have to be careful because sometimes discipline is not done right. Right. Or somebody's disciplined when they should not be. Right. Um, I was disciplined at the church where we lived in Nebraska. I went to the leadership for help. Um, I was in a dangerous situation. And... Um, 
mission. Mm-hmm. And um, Mike sat down and showed me exactly why it's been Mm. Yeah. No, yeah, thanks for sharing, Carol, and uh, I appreciate that uh, reminder that, you know, we do live in still a sin-corrupted, even a church that's sin-corrupted, and just as um, sometimes parental discipline really turns into abuse, even in churches, what is called discipline is really spiritual abuse, and sadly, it's more common than we would wish. And um, I think particularly, like you mentioned, um, there's a big problem in a lot of churches with um, a lack of wisdom knowing how to deal with domestic abuse or uh, just men who are manipulative in general. Um, we talked, about, I think, a little bit about that in the Malachisers, but just like there's, um, yeah, there's a lot of room for growth and thankful for people like Rachel Den Hollander and the ministry she's doing and stuff. But yeah, because we are not at the stage where the church is unified and the church is perfectly wise and just, we see injustice even in um, the exercise of discipline and the exercise of church authority. And it can sadly become cases of spiritual abuse, and which is why we need discernment and case-by-case basis. You're totally right. Um, and when church discipline's done right, um, for just reasons, and it works, it can be a really beautiful thing, but like all, it can be um, twisted and abused. And that's something yeah, we need to be mindful of and be willing to hear people's stories to actually hear both sides, get the truth, and um, have, I guess, kind of a thing like, we need to have an individualistic compassion for everybody based on individual circumstances, you know? So, yeah, thanks for sharing. Uh, verse 10 says... <clears throat> Anyone you forgive, I do too. For what I have forgiven, I have, if, I, if I've forgiven anything, it's for your benefit in the presence of Christ. He's like, if you guys trust this person's repentant and have forgiven them, I'll, I'll join you in that. I don't need to check for myself. So that we may not be taken advantage of by Satan, for we're not ignorant of his schemes. And so the, this scheme of Satan that he's referring to here would be a scheme of not forgiving and accepting a repentant person. So we just need to watch that uh, we don't get in situations where if someone has repented and we're holding unforgiveness or bitterness, um, that's a, uh, like Hebrews 12 talks about a root of bitterness that can spring up and cause trouble. Satan loves to use roots of bitterness that hover under the surface in our churches when churches get gossipy and churches get politicky. And there's all these little things underneath the ground and they spring up a little bit here and there and just corrupt us from within. So we have to be aware that that's what Satan loves to use to divide churches. Uh, Verse 12, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though the Lord opened a door for me, I had no rest in my spirit because I did not find my brother Titus. Instead, I said goodbye to them and left for Macedonia. I think this is interesting. Like Paul had a plan. He's like, I'm going to go to Troas. I'll preach the gospel and Titus will come. He'll tell me about how the church in Corinth is doing. I'll meet up with him. But Titus never shows up. And it's not like Paul can just text him and be like, hey, Titus, man, where are you? Uh, he has like, that would be a pretty, um, you'd be like, ah, where's Titus? Why is he not arrived? What's going on? And he says he has no rest in his spirit. Um, I just think of like us, like what's a situation in your life where it's like, this makes me really restless. Like, it's almost like Paul has an anxiety here. Um, my spirit is not settled. I don't have peace about this decision ahead of me or, um, my plans I had are not going the way I wanted. Like Paul had this idea. It didn't happen. And he's stressed about it. He has no rest in his spirit. And this is Paul who's like content in all circumstances. And life does throw these curveballs out to us. 
Uh, But his response, I think, is really beautiful in verse 14. But, so even though my plans didn't happen the way I want, even though I'm really stressed without rest in my spirit, but thanks be to God, who always leads us in Christ's triumphal procession, and through us spreads the aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. He's like, but even still, this isn't going my way. Thanks God that in Christ, we're always led in triumphal procession. As Romans 8 says, uh, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. And I, I, I like this idea of Christ's triumphal procession. It's almost as if like Christ has conquered the en- enemy and he's like at the head of a parade and like coming into town. And we're just like all kind of like in his train, like in his wake. Um, Christ is going away. We get to walk in his victory that he's accomplished. Uh, or I even think of um, the image of like, you know, those icebreaker ships in the Arctic where it's just like they have the one icebreaker that's like built and just like goes and just like cracks the ice and spreads it. So that like the other um, boats, the research vessels, the medical vessels, whatever, they all just come behind it in the calm water as it's broken through. And it's almost like Christ has broken through our sin, our shame, our death. And we get to like follow behind him in those still waters of peace. And so it's almost as if he's saying, even when things don't go according to plan, even when um, it seems like this is a restless situation, um, ultimately, there's no more ice. There's nothing that can do you ultimate spiritual harm. There's nothing left that can separate the love of God towards you. And no matter how bad life is for the Christian, we always have the love of God towards us, hope of eternal life, um, peace of conscience, knowing that we're freed from the guilt and power of sin. And to remind ourselves of just what are the spiritual realities, which it's hard to do because we're in a material world. We're in a sinful world, but um, in Christ, we have been led in a triumphal procession, just something to hang on to in the hard times. And it's not just like that, that we're hanging on. Uh, God still works through us, even when things aren't going according to plan. Um, he leads us in triumphal procession, verse 14, and through us spreads the aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. Um, the aroma of the knowledge of Christ. It's almost as if like wherever Paul went, Christ was wafting off him. And if you would get close enough to Paul, you would smell Christ. You would catch a glimpse of Christ. You would get something of Christ uh, from him. For verse 15, to God, we are the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Um, I think this is a really cool concept for us to just think about. What does it mean for us to be the fragrance of Christ? Uh, we know that our destiny as believers is to be conformed to the image of Christ more and more. And I think our goal in life is that we would be more and more Christ, that we would more and more look like Christ, sound like Christ, um, in this picture of smelling like Christ. And this is going to take us getting close to Christ. Like when you um, are with a loved one and it's like you catch your, the scent of your wife's perfume is on you. And if you've, if you've been close, if you've been really close, um, that fragrance can come and it, it, you can carry it with you. And so for us, we need to be close to Christ. We need to be cultivating intimacy with Christ in prayer and worship. Um, I think... Uh, um, in, in Psalm 45, it's a, a kingly prophetic song about Christ. And it says, um, your throne, O God, forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You've loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. That is, God anointed Christ 
with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. As like a beautiful poetic description of a picture of Christ, the one who's anointed with the oil of gladness. And there is, I think, um, a gladness, a cheerfulness, a true joy that um, is the picture of Christ's anointing with the Holy Spirit. And First John says, we share in Christ's anointing. That's actually like a picture of oil. Um, I, I had a youth pastor who, he had a friend who wanted to feel like, what would a real anointing be like when you're actually poured on the head? And he like poured this bottle of oil and he like couldn't get the smell out for months. Like shower after shower, he still smelled like this oil. It was like an all. It was like he would walk in the room and people would be like, "Whoa!" Um, and like that's the idea of the anointing of the Holy Spirit with Pentecost poured out from on high, and we should be like just permeated with the Holy Spirit flowing out and making us more like Christ, to smell more like Christ, um, to to live as Christ. Paul says, I'm "Like whatever." And actually, that word too is not even there. It's just to live Christ. And that should be our goal and our heart. And it seems nebulous in ways, but what's something to shoot for? Just to live Christ. Christ. Um, there, there's a song that uh, it's, it talks about, um, like, when I rise, Christ be all around me. Um, before me, behind me, above me, below me, and everything around me, Christ be all around me. So that's what we want. It's a Leland song, I think, uh, originally written by All Sons and Daughters. Also performed by Michael W. Smith, the old classic. Um, so the fragrance of Christ, I think this is really interesting. I was talking to Julie about this in the morning in the car. Um, it says, to some we're an aroma of death leading to death, but to others an aroma of life leading to life. And the interesting thing is that both groups are smelling the same thing, but with different results. So it's not like Paul's going around preaching death to these people and then preaching life to these people. He's going around showing forth Christ, Christ the King, Christ the Judge, Christ the Lord, and some receive that as the smell of death, whereas others receive that as the smell of life. And you think about like Christ saying, I came to bring a sword, and we don't have to try to push people towards death or life, but if we preach Christ, Christ is the one who provokes a response. There's no neutrality towards Christ. He will, the picture of Christ will either be an imminent picture of the judge who will call you to account, or, or the, the lover, the king, who has made you his bride. Um, but our job is just to preach Christ, share the truth about Christ, dead and resurrected, calling all men to follow him, calling us to trust in him. And it'll provoke different responses in different people, and we should be aware of that. If people respond negatively to the message of Christ, uh, Jesus said that would happen. That's no surprise. And he says, who's adequate for these things? It's almost like, how could we have such an amazing opportunity to be reflectors of Christ? Or has, he'll say in two chapters later, or three chapters later, that we're ambassadors for Christ, ministers of reconciliation. Um, almost as if like God is the king of the far country and we're his outposts, his citadels, uh, his embassies here on earth. And we get to be representatives of the king. Um, we get to show forth the fragrance of Christ to everyone around us. It's like, who's, a, who's adequate for these things? Like, we're just broken clay vessels. Um, but he said, I'll tell us later, through the Spirit, we're made sufficient as ministers of the new covenant. But he, he, he brings this to their speech. So he's tying, and this is the, uh, the last thing we'll look at, is how 
he ties the fragrance of Christ to his preaching and speaking. He says, For we do not market the word of God for profit like many. Verse 17. We do not market the word of God for profit. He says we have sincere hearts. And I don't think we see this too much here. But if you go to um, nations in Africa, and there are some parts here, but people will become preachers just to make money. Just because it's a job that you can convince people to give you money for. Some people do go into this preaching business with very impure motives. And he says, like, that's not really showing forth the fragrance of Christ. Paul says, we speak with sincerity in Christ. This isn't to tickle ears. This isn't just to please people. Paul's willing to bring a a severe word of correction, a rebuke, even if necessary. That's not going to win you many friends. Um, But we speak as from God and before God. And this is just a last thought. I really like this distinction. And something for us to take away is what does it mean for us to speak as from God and then to speak as before God. First uh, Peter 4 says that if anyone speaks, anyone speaks in the church, this isn't just like a one category of people, he should speak as of the oracles of God. Be speaking as if God was actually speaking through us. So let's just be thinking, as we're speaking to people, could I say that I'm speaking as on behalf of God? If we're called to be ambassadors, to speak on God's behalf, what would God's truth be for this situation? What would God's words say about how we should live and please God and what we should do and not do and how we should speak and think and love? What would God's words say as we speak from God, but then also speaking before God? That is like with God watching us, with his face looking towards us. And this is the ultimate picture of, this is what the fear of God is. When you think of the fear of God, the fear of God is a recognition that God is before me and everything I do is as in his sight, and therefore I need to be factoring God into every thought, every word, every situation, to really live in the reality of God before me, God's face before me watching. And as Christ says, we give an account for every idle word we speak in the end. Everything we say, everything we watch, every interaction we have with someone is as before God's watching eye. And that should humble us and make us careful to Um, speak what Colossians says to administer grace to those who hear. Speak words that upbuild, and I think that ties in with what Mike was talking about this morning, to be people that speak God's promises to each other, that encourage one another with the words from the Lord. Um, So let's speak as from God and before God, and when we do this, we'll be as those people that are spreading Christ's fragrance around more and more. so one last illustration, I just thought of, we have this like little scent diffuser in our house, but it only works when you plug it into the electricity, and then it just, it's, it wafts it around the house. And so it's like, if we want to be really fragrant, really fruitful that way, we want to be plugged into Christ. John 15, abiding in the, in the vine. And when we abide, then we're fruitful. When we're plugged into Christ, the closer we get to him, the more time we spend going deep into his love, into his person and work, the more Christ will hopefully waft around our lives and make an impact that will last for years to come. So uh, we're out of time, so let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have deposited such riches into jars of clay where these bodies, these souls, I'm living on this planet at this time, and in many ways we're so small. And your redemption is so cosmic, so grand, so phenomenal 
the fact that we get to be carriers of the divine, carriers of eternity in um, these small vessels, Lord, is such an amazing privilege. Lord, we thank you that you, through Christ, have cleared away everything that hindered us from walking in triumphal procession in him. And that you've brought us close to Christ, that you've brought us into your family. That when you discipline us, it's out of love and for our good, in the storms and trials of life, we can trust your kind and gracious heart. And we ask, Lord, that it, as we witness, as we just seek to live in an upright way before our families, before our workplaces and friends, Lord, we ask that Christ would be noticed, that Christ would be seen, that we would speak as if we were speaking for you, and that everything we do would be as before your face, recognizing you. Lord, would you help us to speak the truth in love to one another, to give a brotherly rebuke in season, and that we would all be about becoming more and more like Jesus, for whose sake we pray. Amen.